Grace and peace to you all today. I am Lieutenant Roger McCourt. This is the Salvation Army Napa Corps, and welcome to this week's worship and study. We are working our way through our summer series, 10 Words. It's a look at the Ten Commandments, what they really were, how they matter to us today, if they do, and what some of the things are that we could learn about them that we might not have known before. So far, we have discovered that there aren't actually Ten Commandments. There are Ten Words. Uh, that's maybe better translated as ten utterances or ten sayings. They're, they're spoken things that matter. They're things that God shared with the people of Israel after he had set them free from generations of slavery in Egypt. This was part of the contract that he set up with them through Moses at that time. This contract said that Yahweh would be their God and they would be his people and that these commands plus another 603 would define how they lived so that the whole world would see them as set apart and be drawn to living a life with God. Last week we looked at the very first word and it wasn't even a command. It was a statement of who and what the Lord is. That was so that his people would know him and know about his faithfulness and know that he could deliver on the promises that were made to them. The second word is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. And before we get into that, I want to just point out, some traditions break this word into two separate commands. But it doesn't really make sense out of the passage when you break it up that way. And I'll tell you up front, the passage really breaks into three very distinct pieces. First, there is a command. Second, there's an explanation of what the command means and why it's important. And third, the Lord lays out the results of breaking or obeying the command. So that sounds pretty simple, right? Well, it is, mostly. Let's look at just one piece at a time, and then we'll define our terms and such as we go along, all right? I want to make sure that we all understand what is being said. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You must not have any other God but me. Now, I'm using the New Living Translation today because it gets this right. But if you're using a different translation, say the New International Version, it might say something like, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, I'm not going to let this get complicated, but you can probably see there's a problem here. Both of these are good translations, but they say very different things. One says there is no other God. The other says worship God first, perhaps as the most important of many gods. So figuring this out matters. Fortunately, the whole problem hinges on a single Hebrew word, alpenim, which literally means something on the order of against my face, against my face. Now, if you go look it up, look this word, alpain, pain, uh, apparently I can't even say it. If you look up this word, alpainim, everywhere else that it shows up, it quickly becomes clear that it is best to read this as being in, in opposition or in conflict. So, literally, this says something on the order of, you shall have no other gods against my face. Really... That means they shouldn't be anywhere nearby, um, which means don't have any gods except for me. I, the Lord, am it. I am the one. I am the only. There are no others at all. Do you got it? Good. Which those of you who are paying attention during last week's lesson probably know this is building on the thing that God said in the first word when he referred to the fact that he is God. He is a universal God and no other gods have any power as far as he is concerned. 
In short, God is God. No one and nothing else is God. So, don't let any other gods crowd in because God is God. There are no other gods. Got it? Now, this is going to lead to more questions. What are other gods anyway? So, if we don't know what they are, how do we know if they're crowding in? So, if you look at your Bible, no matter which English translation you've got, you'll notice the word gods in verse 3 is in lowercase. In Hebrew, and I promise we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on Hebrew today, but in Hebrew, you need to know this one. It is the word Elohim. And it refers to any kind of supernatural or superior being. Gods, angels, even supermen or judges who've been given divine authority might be called Elohim. Which brings us to the second part of this second word. Exodus 20, verse 4. God says, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Saying that there's some kind of supernatural being in charge is one thing, but believing that someone or something that you can't see is really there is kind of hard for adults. I've had atheists tell me that God is my adult imaginary friend. See, they don't want to believe in something they can't see and touch. After he was resurrected, Jesus appeared in a room where most of his remaining apostles were gathered, and he talked with them, and he spent time with them so that they were convinced that he was real, and he was alive, and not some kind of a ghost. But one of his apostles, a guy named Thomas, wasn't there that night. So in John chapter 20, verses 25 through 29, they told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Well, then, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. See, we like to see and touch things, but we don't need to. We could believe in Jesus even without actually physically getting to put our fingers in those nail wounds or our arm up that hole in his side from the spear. But for these people that God had just set free from Egypt, all they knew were gods that they could see and maybe touch. All of the many gods that people worshipped back in those days, they were represented in a thousand ways, in art and in sacred objects of the people. So much so that really what happened when they left Egypt was that they began to believe the God who saved them was that pillar of cloud that they followed. And when that pillar went away, they believed in the God who talked to Moses but they really just kind of pictured Moses as being God. Then, shortly after this whole Ten Commandments thing, Moses went up the mountain to spend some time with God, getting those other 603 commandments in line, and he was gone a little bit longer than the people were comfortable with. And in Exodus chapter 32, at verse 1, it says, When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come on, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to that fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. And then Aaron 
We all know this story, right? He said, no, no, that would be wrong. Our, our God said we don't need a statue to recognize him. Oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Wait, that's what he should have said. What actually happened was this, verse 2 of Exodus 32. Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. And all the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. And then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. See in uh, verse 5 there, Lord, it's in all caps. That means it's the name of God, Yahweh. See, Aaron made a statue of a calf out of gold, but he was using it to represent Yahweh. Because even Aaron didn't get that you can't put the essence of God into any kind of a box. Our God created the whole universe. And you want to think that he's as great as a cow because that cow is the strongest thing you know. That's the way the people thought. That's why they made these golden statues out of, that looked like a baby oxen because an oxen was the strongest animal that they knew. But God is so much more than that. Trying to say that he can be represented by something so small and insignificant is insulting at best. Remember the second commandment. You must not have any other God but me. So if God doesn't fit into that little box that you have built to represent him, be it a statue of an animal or a picture of a cloud or a sacred book, then that thing's not him, is it? Instead, it's something that you're trying to put in God's place. Which is why he says in Exodus 20, verse 4, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. So the first part, verse 3, is the command. Verse 4 is the explanation of what it means. And then the first part of verse 5 tells us why it's important. It says, God says, You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And if you read this carefully, whether you're reading in English or in Hebrew, you will quickly realize that it says, anything can become an idol. In some translations, it says not to make a graven image, which means a, a cut or a created image. Anything that you give that kind of life or power to becomes an idol for you. In, in some religious structures, those idols are actually uh, physical statues or, or they're totems that represent an animal or a thing somehow. But some of the earliest idols that we read about in scripture were simply just rocks or trees that were set up and decorated either to create a sacred space that used that object to connect to the deity, or perhaps that thing was supposed to represent the deity in and of itself. In pagan religions, they would often carve or cast a new figure of the god or goddess, and then they would act out some ritual, which was said to bind the essence of the god to that object. Then that god was guaranteed to be there in the place where the idol was when their worshiper would come to speak with them. Or maybe you would come to that idol and, and act out a ritual, such as a feeding ritual to feed that god and to, to bring them in. <laughs> i got to tell you, that, that has always struck me as one of the stranger beliefs that people would have about their deities. In a lot of ancient cultures, their gods could do everything except feed themselves, 
which always strikes me as, as absurd. In the Gilgamesh epic, which is the Mesopotamian story of their gods back in around the days of Noah, the gods actually got fed up with human beings because humans make too much noise. So they, they set out to destroy everyone with a flood. And Gilgamesh and his associates managed to thwart the plan to wipe out humanity, which turned out to be a good thing because their gods, the people who were trying to destroy them, were starting to get hungry again and they realized they wouldn't be able to eat without people. It's crazy stuff, right? In the Bible, we find the Canaanites worshiping the goddess Asherah. Her symbol was a tree. And throughout the First Testament, we find command after command that we should never bring trees in and decorate them because they were idols. Anything can become an idol. I ran across this great example from a rabbi who was talking about how when he was in training, he was helping this young woman get ready to do her first scripture reading in the synagogue. And as they studied the story of the golden calf, she asked this excellent question. She said, what's wrong with idol worship anyway? After all, she pointed out the synagogue around them was filled with beautiful holy objects. It had an intricate, int- had a, a intricate stained glass window. It had a filigree eternal light. And it had this ornate Torah scroll that they reverently carried around and brought out for the readings. And the rabbi explained to her carefully that the problem with idols is that instead of serving as symbols of holiness, they replaced holiness. He said, you know, Jewish sacred symbols are are just tools to remember the central teachings of the Torah. We have tools like that ourselves. Here's one of them right here. Almost every Christian church you're going to find mounted on a wall up near the front, some kind of a cross, a representation, a tool to help us remember the teachings and the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, my rabbi friend said that his, his tools, his things in, in uh, their synagogue, they were there to remind them that they should be kind to each other, that they should always pursue justice. And he said an idol is something that is worshipped as an end in and of itself. And he said that that girl, she listened carefully to his explanation for quite some time, and then she interrupted him and said, well, I just have one more question. If the Torah scroll is just a symbol that's supposed to remind us to be nice to each other, why did you snap at me when we were practicing and I almost dropped it? Now, <laughs> this rabbi said there's nothing like the timely remu- re- a timely rebuke from a 13-year-old to give a new rabbi some perspective on how idol worship is hard to avoid. Now, I know people who treat their Bibles this way, as if the book itself is somehow what is supposed to be worshipped rather than the God that it's supposed to be teaching us about. So what is an idol exactly? Well, it's just what it said in verse 5. It's anything you bow down to or worship. To bow down here actually means to make yourself subject to something. It's anything you give yourself over to or that you give mastery of yourself to. I frequently need to remind myself not to be mastered by my work schedule or by my desire to seek approval from other people. For some people, they give themselves over to addiction or to sex or to obsession about some individual or thing. These are all forms of idolatry. How do you know if you've transformed something into an idol? Easy. Check your worship. Check your worship. See, when we set something apart for devotion or honor, we are giving that thing worship. Here, we've talked about uh, um, the meaning of the word holy before. Uh, It means to be set apart. Um, Something is holy when you put it aside for a specific purpose. Worship is the act of spending time with the holy. 
It sounds churchy when I put it that way, doesn't it? But that is not it at all. It's, it's spending time with something that has been set aside for devotion or honor. And that could really be anything, can't it? I often tell people that the single greatest large-scale act of worship I have ever seen was the victory parade when the Giants won the World Series. Stay with me on this. There were tens of thousands of people who all set apart their afternoon to make their way to downtown San Francisco, where they wore their worship clothing, which were orange and black jerseys with the names and numbers of their gods on them. And they carried objects that were devoted to worship, bats and balls and drinking steins that had the Giants logo on them, and big foam fingers that were waved in praise. And they sang worship hymns together like, Take me out to the ball game, and Don't Stop Believing, and the Giants win song, and others that I didn't know, had never heard, because I am not a sports guy. And these people followed their gods along this route to that great baseball temple at the edge of the water, where they all sat through a really long worship service, breaking into cheers regularly, and eating garlic fries as part of the group sacrifice that they were performing. And they tithed, too, leaving behind a vast portion of their wealth for the high priests of Major League Baseball to use to live and continue to encourage future worship with. Maybe you're thinking, that's not you. But then when you think about it, you know the stats of your favorite players or your favorite teams for the last several seasons, but you haven't actually bothered to memorize any new scripture since you were a child. Back in the day... People didn't have separate sacred lives and secular lives. They just had life. They just lived their lives. And that's how it actually works for you and I, no matter how we want to think about it. So what you need to think is, what am I worshiping in my life? What do I set apart for devotion and honor? I mean, I pick on sports because I'm not a sports guy. But that doesn't mean I don't have areas that I don't need to keep in check or that I don't need to make sure that they're entertainment and relaxation, but not idols that are taking my time, my worship away from God. Because my God is a jealous God who will not tolerate any affection for any other gods. Now, jealousy is something we often think of as a bad thing, because in our culture, we tend to understand jealousy uh, as meaning something that we are jealous of. But the way it's being used here is different. This is God being jealous for something. It's him wanting the, the best for his children. It's a desire to see them live and grow in a way that helps them become everything that he created them to be. Anything that takes them away from that, anything that moves them away from the best for their life, the Lord doesn't want. He is jealous for what we can be, not jealous of what we sell ourselves for. Got that? God is jealous for what we can be, not jealous of the things we sell ourselves for. I mean, he might very well be up there rooting for the Mariners, but he already owns them and the rest of the world. So he's not trying to get what you are getting from that relationship that you are building with your favorite team. Does that make sense? Are you getting this? Devotion to God doesn't take you away from the world, but it steers how you relate to the world. If you're giving control to anything other than God, you're getting steered off your path. You're following an idol, and you need to stop it. 
Because there are consequences for our actions. There are consequences for the things that we choose to focus on in life. And the last part of our passage today explains some of these consequences using some terms that should remind us of the seriousness of our choices. This is uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. You must not bow down to them or worship idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. The effects of sin or obedience are generational. Now, please don't think that this means God is going to punish you for things that your parents or grandparents did. That is not what this says. That is not what this means. Though I can certainly see how someone might misunderstand the English and come to that conclusion. We are assured in several places in scripture that God deals with each person as an individual. One great example is Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 to 22. What, you ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No, for if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins. The parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But, this is verse 21, but if wicked people turn away from their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. All of their past sins will be forgotten, and they will live because of the righteous things they have done. Now, what both the second commandment and Ezekiel 18 are trying to show is that we should choose to live God-honoring lives because children learn from their parents. How often do the children of addicts become addicts? How often do people who've been abused become abusers? How we are raised can have a major impact on how we choose to live our life. Those who are raised with negative role models have a much more difficult time turning themselves and their lives over to God instead of sacrificing themselves on the altar of wrongdoing. I'm going to say that over again because I think I want this to resonate. Those who are raised with negative role models have a much more difficult time turning themselves and their lives to God rather than sacrificing themselves at the altar of wrongdoing that they saw worshipped by their role models. Do you get it? Does this make sense? If you're raised with a negative role model, you're going to have a much more difficult time of going the right way. If you're raised with a positive role model, you're going to have a much better chance of going the right way. Those who are raised by God-honoring people who worship only God are much more likely to choose that life for themselves. Proverbs 22.6 says, Direct your children onto the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it. Now, I wish this was always true, and not just a good general guide for life, but we all do make our own choices, don't we? Choose to worship God. Don't worship other things. 
Watch yourself to make sure that you're not worshiping other things. Immerse yourself in a faith community that will help you keep your eyes fixed on God. And who will call you on it when you put your time or honor or effort anywhere else other than God? Have no other gods. That's what the second word God shared with his people is. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord God, help us to keep our focus where it belongs. Lord, I ask that you would make sure that each and every one of us, if we are making decisions that lead us away from you, if we are paying attention to idols that would steer us down the wrong path or off the cliff entirely, call our attention back to you, Lord. Whether it's through one of your people in our lives or whether it's through one of our brothers and sisters in our close-knit family or whether it is through a complete stranger or whether it's even through a message like this one, Lord, I ask that you would just help us remember to focus on you. If there's somewhere in any of our lives that we are putting too much time, too much energy, too much worship, and we are losing our focus on you, Lord, Help us to recognize that. Help us to realize that there may be things we need to stop doing. There may be things that we need to turn away from so that we can turn back to you and head in the direction that we should be going. Help us all focus on becoming the people that you created us to be. Lord, thank you for providing Jesus because through his, his stories and his life, we have examples of how to live like your people rather than just living like everyone we see around us. Help us continue to live as your people. Help us continue to follow your commands and live in your way so that we are a beacon to those around us, so that we do draw people in, so that we do draw others to be closer to you, so that hopefully, Lord, everyone we have any influence over will see you through us. Help us to lead people in the right way. Because every one of us, whether we believe it or not, is a role model to someone around us. Help us know what is right. Help us to do what is right. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for joining us this morning or this afternoon or whenever you choose to play this video. Um, I ask that... If you are so inclined, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button. Uh, let us know that you have watched this. We would love to, to know that. Um, there are comments section down below. You could post any question you want, or you can always email me. My name is Roger, R-O-G-E-R dot McCourt, M-C-C-O-R-T, at USW dot Salvation Army dot org. Grace and peace to you all. Wherever you go, remember, God is already there, so you have nothing to fear. Go with God.